Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java Junkies. Welcome to another K-Cup mini episode of Time for Coffee. By the way, K-Cups come in three sizes, single, double, and triple shots, or roughly one minute, five minutes, or ten minutes in length. So if you don't have time to throw back an entire caffeinated career conversation, these K-Cup mini-episodes of T4C can give you a quick caffeinated fix, whether you're on the go or you only have a few minutes to binge. So grab your mug and take a chug, because it's time for a caffeinated career triple-shot K-Cup with my guest, Tom Monahan. So how did the idea of offering the products, the research that you were creating as a subscription service, which has since been picked up on and run with by Netflix, Dropbox, all of these cloud-based companies. Mm -hmm. How did that idea come about? I think there's probably, you know, David had two big insights bunch of big insights, but I think two specifically to this profound reshaping of kind of how people pay for stuff. One is, as he was, I think there's a part of David that when he set out to originally lay the foundation stones for what was advisory board and then CEB and then education advisory board, when he talked to people in the same job at different companies, they had the same problems. So the head of marketing at JP Morgan Chase has the same some of the same problems that a marketing and capital want, right? There's just, and they're competitors, but they also, they can benefit from the same set of information. That's the first big insight. The second big insight is, and this is, I think, David applying kind of who he is personally to applying his value set, which is quite strong to a business model. He wanted to construct a business model that didn't feel like he was nickel and diming people. That, you know, when they needed help, it wasn't like, let me tell you what's going to cost you or that that'll be a hundred dollars. You know, that was a peanuts where Lucy, who had the thing, you know, you see the psychologist for five cents or whatever. He didn't want to be in the five cents a transaction, five cents a conversation model. And so he really thought about, okay, if we just sort of say, hey, you subscribe for a year, you get access to everything we're doing. It just let everyone inside the company not, not worry about picking up the phone. If the phone rings, you pick it up and you help. And I think it really, it ended up serving both sides really well, which gave the client budget certainty. How much is this going to cost me? Well, that's it. What if I call twice? Well, that's it. What if I call 10 times? That's it. (laughs) It's the budget number. And on the team side, I think David loved the idea that then you could build a culture that was all about generosity of service. It wasn't about 
you know, before I answer your question, before I get you to the right person, I you need to sign this contract and it's going to cost you a hundred bucks for this. But if you, if you want fries with it, it's going to cost you three more bucks, et cetera. So it really came out of David's desire to avoid a hyper transactional business model so that everyone could just be about the work. And it turned out, I mean, those principles have really undergirded the SaaS revolution, right? Which is on one side, budget certainty. On the other side, take Salesforce as an easy example, but Salesforce is always making its product better and simple to use. It's easy to contract. They're just about enriching the package. And you've seen that obviously in the information sector with Bloomberg, right? Just every year there's new stuff in the Bloomberg package. And I think that really was driven by... David is obviously a great business person, but that one actually came out of his values. I don't think there was like a... I think he thought it would make business sense, but it really came from who he was and what he thought, what sort of company he wanted to build and what he wanted clients we call the members to experience. Well, you helped to lead that company, CED, which has since been sold, I guess in 2017, when you decided to leave as well after 20 years, you led it as CEO and as chairman and CEO for over two decades, right? Mm -hmm. You were you were there. Why did you stay so long, Tom? And do you think if you were graduating in today's job market, we're doing this interview in mid-September of 2022, that that would still happen? Sure. I mean, probably the overarching lesson from that experience is a pretty meaningful portion of the people listening to this conversation are going to spend the bulk of their careers working in industries that don't exist yet or jobs that don't exist yet. Right? Just by definition, you know, if someone had said to me when I graduated college, you know, do you think you'll spend a couple of decades in this business? I would have been like, what is that? And they're like, it doesn't exist. So don't worry about it. Like, <laughs> There's no way to... Yeah, and I think even within companies that exist, what I was doing at Accenture way back when, no one does. Accenture has hundreds of thousands of employees and absolutely not one of them does any of the stuff I did. So you sort of look and say, well, boy, either whole new companies or even with existing companies, you know, what people are working on changes dramatically. I was talking to a um, chief technology, chief information officer and, and head of transformation for a big utility who's an alumni of, of DeVry. And he said, you know, the funny thing is we're a utility. So at the end of the day, we make sure people have light and heat. He said, but if you look at the jobs in the utility, think back to when we were kids or there are people who'd run around and do meter read. And it turns out those have all been swapped out. They're now all device-based that kind of relay information back about usage. He said, no more meter readers, but hundreds of data analysts digesting that data because now it comes in a format that you can use to understand, to make recommendations about conservation, to make recommendations about network effectiveness, to understand loads, et cetera. And he said, in hundreds of people who have to fix these things because they break a lot more off. He said, you know, there's the net number of employees is almost exactly the same. The number of people doing the exact same job is zero. And I think that just, you sort of look and say, you had to sort of get comfortable with the fact that whatever job you're going to be doing 20 years from now simply doesn't exist today. There's you know, the odds that it exists are close to zero. And you just have to be prepared for that to be true because your ability to forecast your own career at a 20 or 30 year time horizon is pretty limited. And how wonderful to yeah. think <laughs> that the jobs, the number, the net number of jobs at that major utility is still the same, which really speaks 
to the importance for all of us of every age to keep front of mind the need to reskill and upskill. Mm-hmm. Learning is not going to end when you get your diploma. Yep, it's going to continue. You know a lot about preparing students for today's job market, Tom, because for the last two years, as we've mentioned, you've been the president and CEO at DeVry. What do you think is the message that DeVry students are taking with them when they walk across the stage, virtual or otherwise, at the end of the time that they spent at your institution? Yeah, I think they probably take away two really important messages. One is, yeah, if you think of a university education, you get, especially a school like DeVry, where we put a lot of energy into very specific professional skills. But universities basically sell a bundled product. They sell two things, you know, if you will, sell. They provide two things. One is an education. The other is skills. Those Isn't that the same thing? I don't think so. I think I'll use, you know, we have a really robust cybersecurity program. And if you graduate today, you know, with a bachelor's in information technology, with a cyber focus, you have tools you know how to use that are, you know, I'd call them training focused tools. So you can be a master of Splunk or something, you know, you really, you really understand that. But you also have a set of critical thinking skills and communication skills and tools come and go, you know, whatever data analytics platform you're using today a year from now, there could be a better one or five years from now, there could be a better one. But that critical thinking skill of, okay, think about in cyber, you know, where are the weak points in our system? You know, how do we think, where could threats come from? You know, what's the right day to do patching? How should I think about relative risk of a threat versus the risk to our business of just shutting everything down while we patch? I mean, those, those are all critical thinking skills. So I think a student walking across the stage probably has two big messages they'll hear from our faculty. One is you've got a set of tools you can put to use immediately, but equally important, you have a set of resources that ought to enable you to thrive and grow across time. If the software package you happen to be a specialist in becomes less popular, nothing is going to erode your ability to think critically, to communicate effectively, to make good decisions. And you might have to get what I call booster shots on whatever software package, right? We put in place a program called the Career Compact at DeVry, where in your lifelong access to career services, you have lifelong access to curated education in your field of study, because we know you're going to come back. We know that whatever software package you learned in 2022 will be out of date by 2027. It's there waiting for you when you want to come get the next one, but nothing will ever get in the way of your critical thinking skills, your collaboration skills your ability to problem solve, your ability to have judgment, your ability to have ethics and make decisions consistent with the values of your organization. So I think universities have those two roles and different universities prioritize them differently, right? But I think every university graduate walks across the stage with more of each than they think they have probably. I look back and say, gosh, I had some pretty relevant work skills as an English major, but I didn't even think of myself as having them. What advice do you have for college students, not only at DeVry, Tom, but at colleges and universities all over the U.S. and around the world? Is there one class or two classes, subjects that they should be taking to hone certain skills or develop certain subject matter expertise? I think there's no substitute for two 
basic pillars of professional success. One is communications ability. Any number of classes teach that. So it, it could be a communications class, could be an English class, could be, could be just embedded. Second is what I'll call quantitative literacy. The idea that I'm comfortable, this does not mean you need to be a math person, but I need to be comfortable with facts and analysis. I need to be able to understand quantitative methods. I think that's really, really important. Third thing I put out there is working with people. One of the hard things about being in a university setting is, and I feel for our faculty, I've been on both sides of this, right? As a student, the dreaded group project, because you know, suddenly you're working with people and you're, you know, not everyone has different skills and you're having to form and storm and norm. And yeah, it's just easier to write the darn paper yourself, right? But the group project always feels like, oh God, do I really have to do a group project? And, you know, that, that's going to take twice as much time. And at the end of the group project, everyone is pretty convinced they did all the work anyway. And faculty who are like, you know, look, it's not, it's not easy. But our faculty, if, I, if I, any of my deans are here with me on the call, they'd say, as it turns out, life is a group project. So you're going to do a lot of, I'm going to make you do group projects because that's what, you know, that's how work gets done. Uh, and those, those are probably the three big ones. Can I communicate effectively? Can I understand and manage quantitative and, and, and fact-based literacy? And can I, can I work in teams? Those are the three. It's hard to point to any career that doesn't require you drawing on those three capabilities. Thanks for tuning in to this K-Cup mini episode of Time for Coffee. If you want to listen to our entire caffeinated career conversation, please check out the show notes for this episode. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.